You guys can have a seat. So uh, anyone watch some football last night? This is the mug of victory. The smug of victory. Let's put that right there for all of you haters. Great to see you. Uh, how many of you are young enough or old enough? I don't know how to do this to remember the show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah? You like that show, Emily? Yeah? Okay. Remember Regis? Good old Reg? Yeah. Uh, we, uh, I, I, we watched that show a lot growing up. My dad really liked it. And um, for those of you younger folk, Regis was, is the older version of Ryan Seacrest or was the older version of Ryan Seacrest. And so Ryan seems to be taking all of his things. But the amount of stress that that show induced was crazy, right? Do you remember the thing that they had, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, you would ask a bunch of questions, or they would ask you a bunch of questions, and the lights would go on you, and it'd be all intense. And then there'd be a, you'd get the question, and then you'd say, this is, and Regis would go, final answer? Yes. And, and then, that's my final. And then, if you had a hard time with any of the questions, you had these things called lifelines. Remember the lifelines? You can, what were they? Let's go. Call a friend. I'm sorry? 50-50. Ask the audience. Yes. Two of those were useless, right? Because it's like you pull the audience, and the audience is just as lost as you are. They eliminate two answers, and the two answers they take out are the ones you knew were wrong. And then you're left with this, you better hope someone answers the phone, right? I was watching an old clip of it that came on YouTube just to make sure I was knew what I was talking about, and this guy got all the way to the million-dollar question. He had all three lifelines, and then he pauses, and he starts, like, hamming it up a little bit like he doesn't know, and he says, I'd like to use a lifeline, and everyone's like, oh, no, he's going to lose the million dollars, and then he calls his dad, and his, they said, well, what's the question? He goes, oh, I just wanted you to be on the line when I won, and I'm like, oh, that's so kind, and then he answers the question, and then he wins the million dollars, and all the balloons fly down, and every, someone writes a huge check. But there was, a, there was other times where they get to the end thing, and they call a lifeline, and then the person doesn't know. I always thought how horrible it would be if the person never answered. Like, it just rang and rang, and all of a sudden they have the voicemail. I wonder if that happened in some of the outtakes, but it's like, oh man, that would be awful. But, you know, when you think of lifelines, this person is on the brink of losing untold fortune, right? You're going to lose something. And they call somebody for help. It's the obligation of the lifeline person to show up and be there to help them. Sort of like what's going on with our study in Job. We've been in Job. This is the third week. Uh, And whether you and I realize it or not, you and I are going to study about Job's three there's eventually four, we'll get to the fourth one next week, of Job's lifelines. Remember the story of Job? He, uh, there's, there's two questions that we can have answered when we go through crises, and we learned that the first week. The first week was God is always moving for good. He's always doing something for good, even though we can't see it. And the other thing that we can know through our crises is that you and I are not God. And so we can't see the end result yet. We know that God's working. We are, like Job says, I am but ash. And, and dust. I am just human. And last week we looked at this, uh, the theological proposition that Job, the, the story of Job does bring us. Like, what kind of God do you follow? And why do you follow God? The theodicy is the fun word that you can throw around this week if you want to impress people. The theodicy of Job is, is God only do things 
uh, or do you, uh, to those people who do rightly. So if you live according to the rules, follow A, B, C, D, E, F, G, then God will bless you. Is that how God works? And the, the picture that we're going to get from Job is no. And then you look at Job's life, and in a matter of two chapters, the man goes from having the perfect life of wealth, status, and family. Remember, everything adds up to 10 in Job's life, which is a sign for he's doing quite well. And then the next time we see him, all of it is gone. And then you turn the page to chapter 2, and not only has his, all of his status symbols and his wealth gone away, so has his health. And then what ends up happening, what we're going to look at today, is Job's friends catch wind of it, and his lifelines come. What I want us to look at today is you and I, we, we need to realize this, that you and I are lifelines for people. There are those around us, maybe even in this room, who are going through some kind of crisis. Maybe they haven't told you yet, but you're a lifeline. We can go around and somebody around us is going through it. Someone is saying to themselves, or maybe they've said it to you, why is life so hard? Why did I get sick? That seems to be the question nowadays. Why did that person have to leave me? Uh, why don't they like me? Why is this happening? All of these questions that people ask, or we've been asking those questions, and we are more like, and, and, and then when we get to them, when you, someone asks you that question, what do you do? How do you respond? And then, how do you have an answer? Because when they ask the question, don't you feel obligated to answer something? And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at Job's friends. Job lost everything, every part of his life, seemingly in a day and a half. If we have bad days, right? Maybe your car tire blows, uh, the dentist calls with the bill, and the furnace ain't working the same day. That's like, oh, adulting, right? Job had it a little worse. Job, could, Job had his life turned upside down, and it wasn't like he can go back to bed. And so he called his lifelines, and how his friends respond will show us how we can respond and, more importantly, how we cannot respond when someone we love goes through difficult times, okay? So open your Bibles. We're going to be in Job chapter 4, okay? And this section of Job actually goes from Job 4 to Job 30. So we're going to go around the room popcorn style. No, uh, you can, we're, we're going to skip through, we're, gonna, we're not going to read all of them. What happens in this is Job's friends show up, there's, uh, there's three of them that we'll look at here, and they were great until they weren't. And what, what his friends do is his friends represent, whether the writer, whether this was real or not, we don't know, we're just going to believe that this book has something for us, but his friends represent for us the common views of God in the ancient Near East where Job is living this transactional view of God. So let's read Job chapter 2. We'll start with Job chapter 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, uh, he was the shortest person in the Bible. Read his name again. Shuhite. There you go. You thought it was Zacchaeus. Boo. Sorry. You're lucky I didn't wear my sweater. So their friends and Zophar the Naamanite, Amathite, heard about the troubles that had come upon Job, and they set out from their homes and met together 
by, together by agreement to go and sympathize and comfort him. That sounds awesome, right? That's, that's the good thing they do. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to him because they saw how much of suffering he went through. Now, some things to look at. None of these friends of Job's are Israelites. They're all just like Job, not Jewish. His friends will end up representing all the theology that's going around him. Job and his buddies, as you look through these 25, 20 whatever chapters, you'll see that uh, there's a cycle that happens. One friend goes, Job answers. Another friend goes, Job responds. And then the other friend, and then they hit repeat and do it again, and then they do it again. And at the end of it, Job finally says his piece, and, and that's, that's the end of the friendly discourse here. His friends come up operating with this big assumption, and we'll go through this. Eliphaz, the Temanite, his rationale of God was this, or why Job's going through suffering was something like this. Two plus two must always equal four, and when something happens to you, it's because you deserved it, Job. You brought it upon yourself. If you would have done what you had to do, when you had to do it by, you'd be fine, and the quality of your life is solely based on the action and how closely you follow the rules. That's what Eliphaz starts to bring to Job. Bildad, the short guy, says this. Uh, he's the matter-of-fact friend. He's the realist. You know, you have your friends that say the cup is half full, the cup is half empty, and then there's a cup, and then your thirsty friend says, I drank it. And so, but th this, this is Bildad. He's the, he's the realist. Compassion and empathy weren't his strong suits. I can identify a lot with this man. He observes the scriptures uh, but he misses the part about transformation. There must be some kind of test, he's thinking, in order for you to get more about from God, which is strange because to Bildad, God is impersonal. And for Bildad, Job is just a problem and not necessarily a human. Zophar is the angry friend. He's the hothead. He's mad at Job because obviously he did something wrong and he's do too dumb and he can't remember. And then he goes on and says, it's probably your kid's fault why, why they died. So don't blame yourself. It's probably, they were probably doing something bad. These are Job's lifelines. And throughout the course of their discussions, they're trying to figure out with Job why this all happened. And so they preach at him. And then at the end of it, Job wants nothing to do with anything that they'd said. Okay? But let's look at some things like they weren't necessarily always in the wrong here. Let's find out what they did right. Remember the very beginning, they showed up. They heard from afar on what Job was going through and they came to see him a long ways off. And Job was in such a bad place that they didn't even recognize him. If you've ever been with somebody around you that's going through, whether it be a sickness something bad, maybe they're going through a divorce, maybe they're going through a death in the family, loss of a job. When trauma hits somebody, oftentimes it changes the way they look. I remember walking in uh, to see my dad in the ICU shortly before he passed. And we walk in, and yeah, he's hooked up to a bunch of machines. He's still cognitive, he can still talk, but he didn't look a thing like my dad. That happens when someone's going through some hard times. They don't recognize. Maybe their personality's off. Maybe they're not as jokey as they used to be. Maybe they don't want to talk. 
This is what happens, and it's probably awkward for, their friend, for his friends. So they walk in, they see Job, yet they still went to him. Even though they don't recognize him, they still go and they comfort him. They come around him. Then they do this in verse 13. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. How many of you ever heard of, you've got to be really careful when you see this, sitting shiva? Don't say it too fast, okay? Sitting Shiva. It's this idea that they had back in the Jewish law. It starts in the, uh, with Joseph in Genesis. When Joseph's father, Jacob, dies, they mourn for seven days. Shiva is the word for seven in Hebrew. And so what would happen is they would go to this place, and they would all find a place to sit, usually on a very low stool or on the ground. They would cover the mirrors, and they would not... Uh, like you didn't shave, you didn't do anything that would be, that's not a problem. Uh, they, they would, uh, you wouldn't do basic grooming or hygiene. You would do the necessities. Uh, the person who's mourning wouldn't cook. Uh, you don't speak to them until they speak to you. And you just, you're with this person for seven days. Mourners traditionally would stay there. Uh, they weren't supposed to listen to music. Uh, some interpretations of Jew Jewish law said that you weren't even supposed to read the Bible during those days. Uh, and, except for specific texts that had to do with mourning. And they would be there as a presence. So no one mourns alone. This is what his friends do. They sit in silence. They put dust on their heads. Sometimes they would tear their clothes to say that you're broken, I'm broken. I want to suffer this with you. And then after the seven days, sometimes it would go longer, but then they would, you know, they would break their mourning and then they would go on with life. This happened here. That's a good thing. The ministry of presence, they showed up. They started as good lifelines. Job needed this. Uh, for some of us, when we have friends going through hard times, and we'll get to more practical things on what we can do, sometimes the best thing that you and I can do is to show up and shut up. Just be with the person. Now, as the days go on in Job's story, Job begins to speak, and anyone going through a lot of trouble makes these statements that you probably would scare you. Here's what Job says, Job 3.3, 3, may the day of my birth perish, and the, night that they, and the same night that they said a boy is conceived. Uh, verse chapter 3.11, why did I not perish at birth? As I died, why didn't I die when I came from the womb? Job 3.23, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden from God, who God has hedged in. These are some concerning statements, right? And as a friend, hopefully, you would catch on that Job is he's wishing he was dead. Uh, he's probably teetering on something called suicide here. And Job's friends hear this, and then they begin to speak. I, I hope that when you hear someone say some words like that, you stop being quiet and you say something to them. Some of you have had to leap into action when a friend of yours has said they feel like they want to hurt themselves or they want to kill themselves. You leap into action. When people say these things about harming themselves, it's time to go from being a passive lifeline when you're sitting around, sitting with them, quiet, to being an active lifeline. 
It's time to ask questions. It's time to get some help. It's time to tell someone. If they're telling you over the phone from a long ways away, there's things you can do with their local police department to do a wellness check on them. There's things that you can do. Make sure they don't have a plan. Make sure that they're safe. Remove things from their home that cause harm. I've been in the situations. Uh, I've, I've even had somebody sign a contract that they're not going to do anything uh, to harm themselves. For some reason, that works. And then they'll think twice because they gave a promise to somebody. Some of you might be there with someone right now. Some of you might have been on the other side of it. If you do need support in this, please talk to me. We have resources. I can help you with through this. Uh, email me. Do something. But sometimes when somebody gets to this point where they're about to harm themselves, it's time for you as a lifeline to leap into some active lifelining, if that's the right verb. But this is, look what Job's friends do. So they hear Job saying this. In Job chapter 4, they begin to talk back. Now, we always pick on Job's friends. We say they're awful friends. They didn't start awful. They ended awful. They leap into action here as they should. And they say this in chapter 4, verse 3. Think of how you have instructed so many, Job, how you've strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those you stu who have stumbled. You have strengthened faltered knees. Look at Job. You have so much to live for. You've still done so much good. They're trying to convince him. Job, people love you. People are encouraged by you. People like you. Just because you're having this hard time doesn't mean that you have to go end your life. You can still do some good. Sometimes, as lifelines, you and I need to raise the eye level of the person that we're helping so that they're not always looking down and looking at the situation, but raise their eye level to see the world around them, to see, oh, I can still contribute. I am still doing things. There's other things in life besides this big boulder that's sitting in right in front of me. A good lifeline raises their eyes to see uh, life from the perspective of their friends. And these were good friends. Sometimes we, we raise their, their eyes. Good friends until they weren't. Well, here's what they did wrong. As the chapters roll along, uh, what I believe happens with Job's friends is the longer you sit with somebody in pain, the more hard it becomes to deal with their pain, right? Because they're always mourning. They're always going through a hard time, and it gets exhausting. I believe that Job's friends become uncomfortable with Job being uncomfortable. It's almost like they can't handle it anymore, and so they, they start trying to fix it. And at this point, they're not helping. In fact, they start to make it worse. Instead of comforting, they move to explaining. Instead of being a lifeline, they attempt to be a life coach. Eliphaz is the first one, uh, and, and he's convinced that Job has done something wrong. Look in verse four, eight, chapter 4, 8. As I've observed, those who plow evil, those who sow and, and reap it. And the breath of God, of God, they perish. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they're no more. Basically, Job, I'm going to fix your problem so you get over this. It's been seven days. Let's move. Basically, Job, you've done something to anger God. Troubles don't just happen. Remember, two plus two equals four. Troubles don't just happen. This is your fault. The short man comes up and says in chapter 8, verse 4, when your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you'll seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he might rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to the prosperous state. Do you see this? Well, Job, if you start acting right, maybe you'll get it all back. So, Job, your kids deserved it, and maybe you should try and get on God's good side. Zophar says this. He takes a swing at it in verse, chapter 20, verse 6. Though the, pride, through the, though the pride of godless person, 
reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Zophar believes that Job is arrogant. And this is God's way of humbling him. You see how these friends with good intentions don't help at all. Oftentimes, when we act as lifelines for our friends, we too get uncomfortable in the pain. And we try to explain it. We try to teach them out of it. We try and solve their problems. We try and fix it. And most of the time, we make it worse when we do that. There are times where we can help. There are times where we can do things that are practical. There are things that we can answer. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and listen. Job even goes too far. Job mentioned this. He says in, in, in verse chapter 6, 21, Now you have proved to me to be no help. You see something dreadful and you're afraid. You see that? So I see your pain and I'm afraid whatever you're doing, I'm going to catch it and I'm afraid of you. They're afraid to be uncomfortable. They've moved past the helping part, and now with that uncomfortable, they're trying to help, but they're making it worse. What these friends show to us is the problem with how we view God back in those days and how many people still view God today, like the ATM version that you get what you get out, what you put in. This whole idea of a prosperity gospel where God wants you to be happy, wealthy, and wise all the time doesn't work. That's not how God works. For example, we are called to be like Jesus in everything that we do, life and death. Last time I checked, Jesus died, which means, and he suffered when he died. So there's no exchange rate that if you do so many things that you're going to avoid the life of Jesus. That's our calling. Life's going to get hard. God doesn't work like a transaction. God doesn't work like that. We might, but God doesn't. Job continues in chapter 16. I have heard many things like these. He's talking to his friends. You are miserable comforters, all of you. You're terrible at doing this. Job still feared God. He still loved God. The wager back in, Gen back in chapter 1 was that if you strike him or if you remove the hedge around him, God... He will curse you. Job never does that. He still fears God. Even though everything is crumbling, he wanted to understand why it was happening, but these guys weren't helping. Their opinions about God weren't right. They were constructing for him a bad theology, a bad theodicy about how God runs the world. And Job wanted nothing to get from it. And when we sit with our friends, we need to keep this in mind. There's a book uh, by Kate Bowler, uh, it's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other, Lives, Other Lies That I've Loved. It's an incredible book. Kate Bowler is a Duke Divinity uh, professor, uh, doctorate, and she writes this book. Kate had stage four cancer, and she wrote this book after cancer. I'm about halfway through it. It's incredible because she just kind of takes away how people tried to comfort her during her time, and she brings in a lot of wisdom. Uh, she has this in the back section of the book. It's, it's in Appendix A. It says the things you should not ever, ever say to someone who's hurting. Okay? This is something for us as we're lifelines to somebody, something for us to keep in mind. Things you should never say. Well, at least. Oh, isn't that terrible? I remember when uh, uh, our, our house burnt down in 2008. And yes, we were still alive. Okay, that was great. But 
at least you got your car. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Uh, we try, we, we say it to make people feel better, right? At least. Unfortunately, making the comparison doesn't help. It minimizes the actual trauma that's happening. Uh, the next thing, in my long life, I've learned. In your long life, you've learned. Uh, okay. Uh, remember, when someone's going through some hard times, uh, we all experience things differently. In my long life, I've learned that you might have learned something different than this person did. Your experience is different than this other person. Be sensitive to how others might be experiencing their loss. The next one, it's going to get better. A promise. That's a big promise. Will it? It might not. Are, are you God? Do you know the future? This one is terrible. God needed an angel. Never. Can we make a deal? Don't, don't say that, okay? One, it's theologically incorrect if we want to get... <laughs> if, we wa if, if we want to get technical. <laughs> um, angels are, according to the tradition, their own entities. They're not created from dead people. Uh, that's not how angels work. Um, it's also incorrect because God, it makes God look like a selfish person that needs an angel, and so he takes someone you love. That's not, that's not how it works. Angels were created by God before humans, just so we all aware. You can read about it in the Old Testament in your quiet time. Go ahead. Uh, but don't say that. And the other one is don't, uh, everything happens for a reason. No. That's this transactional view of God. Everything happens for a reason. When someone is drowning, the worst thing you could do is tell them why they're drowning instead of throwing them a life vest. Well, this happened because you got too close to the pool and now you're dying. It doesn't work like that. Don't do it. The reason is for you to hand them a life vest, right? Not to tell them why they fell in. Uh, this one is something that I've fallen into. I've done some research. Um... My finger hurts every once in a while. This is just, it doesn't hurt now. This is just an example. If I go on WebMD and do some research, I either have a, a sore finger or lymphoma. It's, it's that spectrum, okay? You've done some research. It's probably not time to share your research. Are you a medical doctor? Are you a researcher? Do you know what you're talking about? Your internet history is not your research for this. Uh, the, the, your friend's acquaintance's brother's cousin is not someone you want to talk to in this. The Facebook comments is not the research you do. And then this, uh, my aunt had cancer. Well, that's your aunt. This is me. Uh, and, and a lot of times we say these things in order to help us identify with what's going on, but we don't need to say them. And then the last one, God never gives us more than we can handle. Also, first of all, theologically incorrect. The scripture that people take this from is in Corinthians where it says, God will never tempt you more than you're capable of fighting the temptation. That's, that's where this comes from. Never does it say that God will give, never give you more than you can handle. Uh, if you can find it in the Bible, I'll give you $100. It's not. If you want to take the bet, I'll take my $100. What Bowler points out with these and other things is that with good and these are all said with these great intentions. But ultimately, we try, when we do those, we're stepping into the same place that Job's friends were. We're making their problems our problems. And we're trying to fix them so that we don't have to be uncomfortable anymore. 
a friend of mine who she was going to come share today, but she had to get pulled into another location. Uh, she talks about her hospital chaplaincy. And, and when she was there, one of the things that she said is you walk into the room to take care of somebody, to be with somebody, to comfort them, but it, you, you don't crawl into bed and start taking their suffering for them. You become a presence. There's a boundary when we care for people. The boundary is there for them, but it's also there for you. Boundaries are good things. And what, this, what Job's friends tell us is that when we comfort people, make sure you have the boundary. You, are, you don't need to fix their problems, so it's going to solve your exhaustion. You just need to be present with their problem. So what can we do differently? Bowler gives another list of things we can say. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's things like this. Can I give you a hug? And unless you're creepy, that'll probably be okay. Can I give you a hug? Oh, or say, can, this, is, this is hard. Uh, can I email you and set up bringing you a meal? Can, can I do something practical for you? I don't want you to take care of the meal train and how I'm supposed to get this to you. I'm going to email you and whatever you want, whether it's chocolate or a granola bar, I'll bring it to your house. Can I care for you there? And then the best of all is silence. Show up. Shut up. Be there. Be present. Don't try and solve. But instead, what, what we can do is, and when the pain is awkward, when the tragedy is awkward, when people's bodies are suffering, it's awkward. When we show up, the most practical thing that we can do is bring them to somebody who can do something about it. Job's friends start to paint an incorrect picture of God for him. And that starts to affect Job to the point where Job is teetering on actually losing the bet that Satan proposes before God. Finally, at the end, Job says, get away from here. I'm going to go straight to God with this. And that's what we can do with this. Uh, what my favorite gospel is the gospel of Mark. I know we're not supposed to have favorites, but it's the one that moves the most. And I have a short attention span. And this one me keeps moving quickly. The most common word in the book of Mark is the word immediately. I like that. Okay, so as you read through Mark, it's immediately this, immediately this. In Mark chapter 2, there's the story about a man who was paralyzed. We don't know why he was paralyzed. We don't know how he was paralyzed. He could have fallen down one day. He could have been born this way. We don't know. In Mark chapter 2, it just says, there was a man who was paralyzed. We also know this, that he had to rely on people every single day of his life for every single thing. People would pick him up and place him by the gate where he would beg for money, and that's how he paid for his things. People would have to roll him over at night so he wouldn't get the bed sores. He always counted on people. He had a group of friends who knew him. Maybe they knew him before he fell down, bumped, uh, broke whatever he broke in order to be paralyzed. We don't know, but it says that he had friends. And his friends heard that this teacher slash carpenter slash might be Messiah was coming into Capernaum that day. And so his friends go and get their buddy, and they had an idea, along with everybody else in the town. They're going to go take his friend to Jesus. And so the crowd was huge. Mark says that they filled up a house. There was no other room in the place. People were coming from everywhere in order to be healed. So by the time they get there, they probably looked at, and they're standing out the yard with their buddy, going, this isn't going to work out well. And then one of them had an idea. They didn't give up. I like these kind of friends. The, the crowds won't stop them. So they come up with this perfect plan, right? 
they decide to climb to the top of the roof with their friend in tow. Uh, probably not the wisest thing to do, holding somebody to climb up on some roof, but, you know, they had nothing to lose. They get to the top of the roof, and the roofs that day were mud and thatch, and they start peeling it away. And as they're peeling it away, I imagine Jesus is kind of looking up, like, what, what's going on? Everybody is now looking. Was it risky? Yes. Could they have fallen through the roof? Absolutely. The homeowner, what's he thinking? You guys just destroyed my roof. Are you going to pay for this? It was very intrusive, very destructive. Yet they did it anyways. Mark 2 tells us this, that when, when you read it this week, Mark 2 says, and when Jesus saw the friend's faith, he was moved to action. Uh, he didn't say anything about the man who was paralyzed. He was the one probably had the most faith, like, hey, you guys are lowering me down from a roof. What if I fall? You know, that's, you know, the, it, he didn't say anything about his faith. He said when he saw the friend's faith, and then Jesus looks at his friend, at, at the man in the thing, looks up there and says, by your faith, his sins are forgiven. And then it causes a stir, right? Because the Pharisees don't like when Jesus does what he's meant to do. And it causes this huge stir, and they get mad, and Jesus kind of, you know, goats them out a little bit and says, what's harder, forgiving this person of their sins or, and here it is, telling this person to get up and walk. And then I can imagine this guy on the ground going, what? You want me to, uh, you want me to walk? And then verse 12, uh, or verse 11 says, take up your mat, you're healed. And in verse 12, it says this, he got up, he took up his mat, and he walked out in view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. The very best thing that you and I can do when we get the call and someone needs a lifeline is firstly, take them to Jesus. It's the very best thing. It might seem very impractical. Oh, you just want me to pray? Cool. I'll pray. It doesn't seem like you're doing much. You want to solve. We're all fixers in this world of ours. We all want to do this. But the very best thing you can do, take them to Christ. Not ask questions about why they're there. Why did they get sick? What, what were they speeding? What was, never, that's not our very first step. The very first step, organize a prayer group. Get in your house. Start praying. And then if you need to do something, show up. Shut up. Your ministry of presence is what we need. We're all lifelines. We have Job's walking around us everywhere. Your job, take them to Christ. There's another story in the scripture where uh, the disciples tried to figure out what was wrong. They tried to, uh, to, to assign blame to this person who was blind and deaf from, uh, from birth. And this, so they're all going around saying, uh, maybe his parents did something different. Or maybe, uh, maybe he sinned when he was a baby. Uh, and so they're asking Jesus. They're trying to solve it. And Jesus goes, no. That's not, that's not what we're supposed to do here. And it almost like he says, bring him to me. I'll fix it. And then he does his Jesus thing where he touches the eyes and puts his fingers in the ears and this man can see. 
I bet you all of us have something like that, someone going through, and we can be a better lifeline if we take them to Christ. Maybe you're going through something right now, and what you need is not to try and solve it on your own. Maybe your first step is to take your problems to Christ. Maybe you've been fighting this battle for far too long and you're kind of afraid to bring it to to your friends or your community uh, because you're embarrassed. Friends, this is not a life that we can get through on our own. It's not a life that we can live isolated. You were never meant to live that way. Stop trying to live that way. Bring it to your people. If you don't have people, we can find you some. There's about 70 here today. We can find you some people. And we can take you to Jesus. This is one of the beautiful things that we do in our prayer night. We pray for people. We pray for you. Because we take you to Jesus. We take our city to Jesus. We take our neighbors to Jesus. Because he's the only one that can ultimately do something about it. And we're commanded to do so. So would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that with all of our problems, you say, bring them to me. You say in Matthew, come to me. It's the invitation, come. You're weary, you're tired, you have a lot on your plate. You can't go on with your life. Come, come to me. And then you promise us this thing called rest, and we're like, what is that? And so God, as we all step into our roles as lifelines today, Maybe even in this moment. May you give us the strength to hold back on the fixing of things. And may you give us the actual courage to take people to you. The healer, the provider. You say, in everything we go through, by prayer and supplication, present your requests to God. And then the God will give you the peace that transcends all understanding. So God, today we bring our friends to you. Our friends who are going through some hard times, sickness. Maybe they're in the hospital. Maybe they're home and depression has taken over. Maybe the anxiety got too much. Maybe the bills are getting too high and the bank account is getting too low. We bring those people to you. Maybe the loneliness is starting to crowd people out and they're asking those questions that Job asked. Why am I even here? God, may we as friends, as lifelines, move into action and point people back to you. I don't know if people are coming to your mind, but Perhaps a text message right now to that person is appropriate. Perhaps a note. Just saying, I'm with you. I'm here for you. This is hard. Or I'm praying for you. Lord, would you bring those people to our minds today? It's in your name we pray. Amen.